I was on a quest to find the real Donald Cotton. Stumbling across his son Perry and first wife Hillary had been a big breakthrough. As they shared their memories, a figure had started to appear from the mist. A theatrical showman, perhaps born a century too late. A man with a magical way with words, but words he used to hide his insecurities. What I think I'm trying to say is he adopted a persona, and maybe it took him over a bit. I think definitely it took him over a bit. He almost lived up to his own legend. But underneath it, was he was sensitive and rather shy. That's Hillary. He did sometimes say he thought he was the court jester, and he resented it. When you put on a show to make people love you, the problem is you soon start to believe it's just the performance they love, not the real you. And perhaps that explains Donald's affection for animals. Despite giving up his zoology studies at university, Donald was always happiest walking through the countryside, birdwatching, and he adored his loyal dogs. And the thing that strikes me is, animals don't judge. Animals require no pretense, no performance. Around them, Donald could just be. He could give them affection in an unguarded way that he could rarely manage with people. Because animals weren't going to reject him. They wouldn't prove to the world he was unlovable. A lot about Donald was becoming clearer in all his fragile contradictions. The shy clown, the scarred child who expected abandonment and then abandoned his own family. My problem was that Perry and Hillary couldn't tell me much about Donald after the 1960s. Newspaper references gave me some career details, but I wanted more than a resume. I was trying to get a sense of the real man. But other than the few details Nigel Robinson had shared about his lunches with Donald in the 80s, when Nigel was his editor at Target Books, Donald Cotton's last 30 years was still a mystery. And the biggest mystery of all was that coroner's report into his death in 1999. Perry and I were still waiting to get that back. What happened there? How did Donald Cotton die that they needed a coroner's report? What I did know was that by the end of the 1960s, Donald had hit a brick wall. His radio career was gone, his TV career was gone, and his marriage was gone. He spent the next decade drifting in one way or another. In some ways, that was how he spent his whole life. This is Mythmaker, The Lost Legacy of Donald Cotton. I'm Lucas Testro. After the marriage breakup, Donald fled his woes to Spain. There he likely stayed with his friend Tony Snell, who was running a yacht charter business in Ibiza. Tony was an old cabaret colleague who'd also location scouted the real tombstone when Donald was writing the gunfighters story for Doctor Who. And maybe it was while they were staying together that Donald contributed lyrics for a number of songs on Tony's 1968 album, Medieval and Latter-day Lays. The first track, Fungus, gives us a glimpse of Donald's state of mind around this time, opening with the declaration, Roses are red and violets are blue, but fungus is yellowish-grey. For a comedy album, Fungus seems pretty dark. It's not just an anti-love song, but kind of an anti-life song. Bring me a jolly pally algae, or a dirty darn very dry rot, or a dank little room with a death cap's bloom, or a quaint little elfin's grot. Don't talk to me of the life to be, the poets have often sung us. For when I die, I'd like to lie and just grow fungus. Or maybe I'm reading too much into some silly rhymes. 
Anyway, by 1969, Donald was back in England and back in the theatre. But the difficulty of relationships was still on his mind. He'd written what was billed as a play on words and music called My Dear Gilbert. It was all about a tumultuous relationship, but a relationship of a creative kind, the partnership between musical theatre maestros Gilbert and Sullivan. My Dear Gilbert premiered on the 12th of May at the Princess Theatre in Torquay. In the starring role of W.S. Gilbert was John Pertwee. While Pertwee was performing Cotton's Lines by Night, by day he and his agents were finalising a deal for him to take over the starring role in a little show called Doctor Who. Pertwee officially signed on as the third Doctor on the 21st of May, just over a week after opening in the play. My Dear Gilbert received mixed reviews, with the stage concluding, The play fails to convince. The singing is commendable, but in the play there is not enough drama. John Pertwee gives a strong individuality to the peppery Gilbert, very human and very entertaining. Byron O'Leary gives a sensitive study as the ambitious composer, Sullivan. But maybe the play's most important achievement was that it seems to have settled Cotton back into the theatre world, his first creative home. In the early 70s, he floated between seasons at the Connaught Theatre in Worthing and the Pitlochry Festival Theatre in Scotland. At both companies, Donald left writing behind to focus on acting. At the Connaught, he first took over from John Pertwee in the lead role for a new season of My Dear Gilbert. He then won praise for his starring role in Benbow Was His Name. Donald Cotton makes Benbow an irascible, growling, nautical John Bull, faithful to his men and country even in death. A strong part, strongly played. Donald shared the stage in Worthing with an opera singer called Eileen Shaw. Newspaper reviews at the time described her as stately and lovely. Donald and Eileen became a serious couple. In fact, anyone I've met who knew Donald said they were married, and his obituary in the Daily Telegraph makes the same claim. There doesn't seem to be a marriage certificate though, so it may be that Donald and Eileen never officially formalised their union. Meanwhile in Scotland, Donald shared the stage with future sci-fi royalty, because joining him in the Pitt Lockery Company for its 1971 season was none other than Michael Keating, later to become a cult legend in Blake 7 as the roguish villa. Pitt Lockery seems to have been a happy time for Donald. He was a big hit in at least three productions there. Of George Bernard Shaw's Candida in 1970, the stage focused its praise on a truly glorious performance from Donald Cotton as the hearty Reverend Morell, his forceful compliance so immense that his doubts, as they arise, are compellingly dramatic. And when reviewing the haunted house comedy Thark in 1971, the stage said, The sheer ripe energy of Donald Cotton as Sir Hector sets the pace for the company's fun without Frill's confidence. And then finally, the Pit Lockery Company restaged Cotton's 1960s hit play Mamzelle Natouche, with the stage raving that it was an entirely enchanting production, with lyrics of bright originality and at times Gilbertarian oddity. Donald Cotton is superbly roaring and bloodshot as the lustful Major General Ferdinand. Donald also used his time in Scotland to pursue another of his creative passions. He was an artist too. This is Donald's son, Perry. He had done a series of uh, pointless paintings, uh, pen and ink, uh, of birds, and he toured that round various places in Scotland and sold quite a few, I think. But again, as a career move, it never really took off. Is that your kind of view of him, that he was sort of trying to find... His... I think he was trying to find his oeuvre. And that's something Perry can relate to. I'm one of these people who still doesn't know what he, be, what he wants to be when he grows up. You know, I, I've had a career of ricocheting around, and I think that's possibly born of him. 
I, I think he was also one of these characters who had an idea. I think in the 1939 voter census in the UK, I've got him age 11 at, at boarding school. So he was sent away to boarding school. But I think he never really settled uh, on any one thing. He had lots of ideas and lots of creativity and tried lots of things. Um, I think there was just a general disconnect with the modern world uh, and the, the world he found himself in. Mm. And I can empathise with that. Soon after Donald's exhibition, though, he did finally find some small measure of stability. Because around 1976, he moved to Northampton, found a home in the countryside, and went on to stay there for about a decade. Donald became a central member of the repertory company at Northampton's Royal Theatre and Opera House, writing, acting, and occasionally even directing productions there. Sharing the stage with him was Janet Fielding, soon to be cast as Tegan Javanka in Doctor Who. Fielding performed at the Royal from 1979 till 1980. Also in the company was Glynis Barber, soon to become Sue Lin in Blake Seven. Reviewing the Royal's production of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, the stage noted, Glynis Barber, in her most demanding role so far at the Royal, makes the shy, timid bride, the second Mrs. de Winter, appealingly vulnerable. While also finding praise for Cotton. Donald Cotton presents a butler solemn enough in tone and manner to merit employment at Buckingham Palace. Repertory theatre was a hard-working, hard-living life, which, of course, was the only way Donald knew how to live. This has almost disappeared in, in, in Britain now, but you would be in a rep company. Now, originally, they used to do weekly rep, which I did at the beginning of my career, where you did a different play every week. So you would rehearse during the day and perform at night, and then you'd change over and do a different play the next week. And it was, it was fiendish, you know, just rid- ridiculous. So they eventually changed to two weekly and then three weekly. And I think Northampton was operating three weekly when I went there. You got three weeks, well, two and a half weeks rehearsal and, and almost three weeks playing the play. Uh, so we would get uh, two and a half weeks to rehearse Kiss Me Kate, which is pretty difficult. A big musical. That's Nicholas Lumley. I'm uh, an actor for 45 years. I live in Hungerford in Berkshire, which is halfway between London and Bristol in England. And uh, that's all you really need to know about me. Well, not quite. Because like Donald's first wife, Hillary, Nick is also cooler than any of us. Because Nick is a personal friend of Paddington Bear. He was Paddington's cellmate, in fact. You're in Paddington too. Yeah. Isn't it wonderful? It was just a joy to be in it. I missed the last day's filming because I had to go and have my eye in hospital seen to. And when they told me there was nothing wrong with it, I said, do you realise, watch, I've missed a whole day filming on Paddington with Hugh Grant, you bastards. <laughs> Nick plays Farmer Jack, one of Paddington's prison chums, who you'll spot most famously in everyone's favourite shot from that prison visit scene. I'm sorry, this is a private conversation. Oh, it's all right, Mr. Brown. This is my friend, Knuckles. Oh, yeah. And this is Fibs. G'day. Spoon. Hello. Jimmy the Snitch. All right. T-Bone. Watch out. The Professor. Hope. Squeaky Pete. Hello. Double Bass Bob. Hello. Farmer Jack. Okay. Mad Dog. Oof. Johnny Cashpoint. Catching. Sir Jeffrey Wilcott. I hope I can rely on your vote. And Charlie Rumble. <sighs> it's so wonderful to meet you all. That moment at visiting time, <laughs> when we all appear, that shot took three hours because we all had to come in one after another to exactly the right position. 
And every time I do it, then, you know, someone would be that much out. And look, I promise I'll get back to Donald Cotton in a moment, but it's not every day I get to talk to someone who's been in one of my favourite movies. So here's one last piece of Paddington trivia. The real Paddington is a lovely Australian lady who's about four foot six. And she is the body of Paddington. For the eye line, we did it all to her. So when we're watching him walk up to Knuckles and we were all sort of mouths open, we go, oh my God, what's going to happen here? We're following her. Now, in the prison scene, when you see Paddington in bed and sort of not comfortable and stuff, that's her body. So they, they, they put the, the head onto a human body. Anyway, before I got distracted, Nick was telling us about repertory theatre. It was a rude awakening going and working in that theatre because one of the extraordinary things was the actors used to come for the season and they brought all their possessions with them. They didn't have a house somewhere else. They came to the town and moved into digs, which would be a room in someone's house, virtually with everything they owned. And they always ran out of money before the end of the week. They would always say to the young actors, oh, you couldn't uh, see your way to five pounds, I don't suppose. To... And, and we used to go to the pub at lunchtime in rehearsals. And we didn't do any work in the afternoon because everyone was pissed. We used to go to the pub during the show sometimes when I worked with Donald. We used to put a, a, a raincoat on over our costume. And if you weren't on for 25 minutes or something, you can have a quick pint in the pub next door. <laughs> it was lethal. And just in case there's any doubt, as well as taking Nick out for drinks mid-performance, yes, Donald was one of those actors who would then ask Nick for a fiver. Donald had already been at the Royal for a couple of years before Nick arrived. His biggest success had been Love Between Friends, which may have been his first play at the Royal. Donald wrote and acted in the production, which starred Eleanor Bron. Eleanor's a legend of English stage and screen, but of course, she's probably best loved by Doctor Who fans for 39 seconds in City of Death. For me, one of the most curious things about this piece is its wonderful e-functionalism. Yes, I see what you mean. Divorced from its function and seen purely as a piece of art, its structure of line and colour is curiously counterpointed by the redundant vestiges of its function. And since it has no call to be here, the art lies in the fact that it is here. Exquisite. Absolutely exquisite. The stage saw good West End potential for Love Between Friends, praising its comedic exploration of platonic love. It boasts witty lines and an abundance of funny action. But the author doesn't allow Fast to overpower the other elements in his comedy. Indeed, it ends on a wistful note, almost a sigh of pathos. That last comment's interesting. Some of Donald's earlier work had been criticised as too light. But here again, there's a hint that Donald's family troubles in the 60s had left its mark. Perhaps it was giving his writing new weight. Nick first worked with Donald on a tour by the Northampton Royal to the Ludlow Festival. We did Macbeth, which was quite a, a prestigious job. It was um, Simon McCorkendale playing Macbeth and Gail Honeycutt playing Lady Macbeth, who were pretty established, famous English actors. I think Donald played something like the Doctor, and uh, 
and a priest or something. I seem to remember him in a great big monk's outfit. He was a big man. He was quite a size. And then I was invited back to Northampton to do the part of the season in the main theatre. First up was a pantomime written by Donald. It was Dick Whittington, right, which he wrote. Now, he, it was rather a learned sort of pantomime for a children's show. It had sort of classical references in it and stuff. In fact, there was a line which was, he's terribly rich. How do you know he's rich? He has creases in his trousers. <laughs> we hated this line so much because nobody ever laughed at it. And we used to say it and always stop to see if anyone laughed. It wasn't popular with the kids. Said <laughs> one night we're going to have a coach load of Oxford Dons in, and they're going to fall about when we say this line. And one night someone laughed, right? And it was the night his son came to see the show. Yeah. So I think maybe Perry got the joke, but he was the only person in 240 performances who did. Nick and Donald also collaborated on what might have been Donald's first and only directing gig at the Royal, a production called Rule Britannia described by the papers as a collection of royal miniatures. He'd written that, and um, I did it with an actress called Pia Henderson, who I was at drama school with. And so what was he like as a director? Oh, very good, very good. I mean, um, he was madly in love with the girl that that I was playing with, so he wanted to do more of the scenes with her than me. (laughs) But everyone, everyone was slightly in love with Pia. They rehearsed the play at Donald's house. Well... I say house. Donald lived in this rather lavish um, pavilion, and it's called the Stoke Park Pavilion. Now, I only Googled that name after getting off the line with Nicholas, and I nearly fell off my chair. Picture something out of Downton Abbey. There was this fantastic, beautiful, huge stately home, which was demolished, but what was left were were the sort of... There were arches came round, and there were two pavilions at the front of it. Seriously. If these are the leftovers, I can't imagine how sumptuous the main house must have been. Running in front of the two pavilions is a grand water feature with a fountain rising in the middle. It's the kind of thing you can imagine Helena Bonham Carter strolling around in a white dress and sun hat shaded by a parasol. Beyond all that, a vast lawn spills into the distance, with sheep grazing lazily away. Well, Donald had one of these. I think he just knew the bloke who owned it, or the farmer or something. They were a bit run down, but it was all furnished with this amazing stuff that had been there for 200 years and things. I think the other one was full of hay bales. <laughs> Donald's pavilion was freezing cold, but that didn't stop it from becoming a home away from home for many of the Northampton crew. We used to pile out there and, and he used to cook the most amazing lunches and things, you know, roast, roast pork with all the trimmings and or roast beef with Yorkshire puddings and gravies and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty He could cook. And as we know, he could also tell a story. He used to do these recitations. They were always about Uncle someone or Uncle Ebenezer or something. And when he had a few, everyone would say, oh, Donald, give us one of your poems. And he used to stand up and do these great, long, silly poems. My Uncle Ebenezer was a funny sort of squeezer and all this sort of stuff. And he used to go on and on and on and on. They were very funny, very erudite, very witty. Don't know where they came from, not a clue, but, uh, you know, it was always good for, a, good for, good for five-minute staffness. The Stoke Pavilions were about 50 minutes away from Northampton, and Donald, forever scared off driving by his bus experience, found a unique way to get around town, one that perfectly complemented his self-styled image as the ultimate country gentleman. Oh, he used to have a, a horse with a cart. 
I don't whether he had a donkey or a horse, I can't remember. It was a donkey. And according to Hillary, the donkey's relationship with Donald wasn't quite as idyllic as Donald had hoped. He had this, what was his name, Zebedee? Uh, in a field at the back of the house where he was living. And he decided he would, he would show me how he got him onto the horse and cart and used him. That donkey wasn't going to be caught by anybody. It was the most bloody-minded, obstinate animal you've ever met. It was big. It was a big donkey with huge ears and a very mean expression. And they obviously loathed each other. It was really quite funny. <laughs> this wonderful image of himself, you know, trotting there with long whip and trotting in. And... No. <laughs> this donkey would oblige no one. It wasn't into obliging. <laughs> But Zebedee did oblige in the way that might have mattered most to Donald. It suited him fine because the donkey and the, well, the pony knew the way home. Um, and so if he'd had a drink or two with his mates, um, he could sit in the car and urge the pony homewards and the pony would go, you know. <laughs> Donald went on riding at the Northampton Royal for several years, creating an opulent adaptation of Wuthering Heights, amongst other productions. But his last acting role was Kiss Me Kate in late 1980. And he went out with a bang. Donald Cotton and I had to, were supposed to be, were called to a dance call. And I said, what the hell do they want me and Donald at a dance call for? And we had to hold a banner that said, welcome to Venice. And there's a famous song in Kiss Me Kate, which goes, we open in Venice, we next play Verona. And our job was to walk around with this um, sign so one of us had to walk backwards and one of us had to walk forwards and then we did a circle and they sort of danced in between us you see and we had these commedia dell'arte masks on with great big noses and the night came where we were all standing i said donald isn't here i'm sorry everyone donald's not here i'll just put the banner down i'll just put it and he had a rather commanding voice donald who spoke like this very very quickly so i'm here everybody i'm here don't worry i'm here i'm here and, and, and the curtain went up, this little curtain, but I said, I can't see a thing, I can't see a bloody thing. And I looked over and he put his mask on the wrong way around. So, so the nose was sticking out of his forehead, right? <laughs> and he had to go forwards to begin with. He, he said, I can't see a thing. I said, I'll stop you when you get... And he kept walking and he walked straight into the orchestra pit and landed on the drum kit, right? And the whole number stopped. The drummer was furious. He's screaming and shouting at him. Um, they st every, the audience were just laughing and laughing and laughing. And then someone eventually said, right, well, try and start again. And they start playing and the audience all laughed again. And they tried to start again and the audience laughed again. And eventually they did it. And we got. And I put the banner down. I think I left. Uh, I just joined in the back, skipping around. And I went back to the dressing room and Donald was sitting there with quite a large whiskey. And he said, hey, I caused a bit of a stir there. Now, for a documentarian looking for content, Nick had been full of gifts. And I thought that last story would be tough to top. But then this happened. And so was he late because he, uh, he was dashing across from the pub? No, he was probably chatting up um, one of the, the, the uh, uh, stagehands because he was, at that stage, madly in love with a 22-year-old with a stagehand who played the um, goose in Mother Goose. He was mad in love with Tams and he bought her a television set for Christmas. He was mad in love with Tams, mad in love with Tams and he bought her a television set for Christmas. Tamsin. Remember my conversation with Nigel Robinson back in episode one? 
In terms of how dedications come to be, is that something editors ever have anything to do with? I mean the dedications on the title page. Yeah. No, it's just down to the author himself or herself if they want to do one. Right. Um, so you wouldn't know any of... Well, can I ask if these names ever came up in conversation with you? The Gunfighters has a dedication for Tamsin with coloured moon clouds. Yeah, I have no idea who Tamsin was at all. One of my white whales when I first started this project. Donald's mysterious dedication in The Gunfighters. But now I had some details to put with the name. I hit Google and find a Tamsin whose acting CV says she was in Mother Goose at the Northampton Royal. Surely there couldn't be more than one Tamsin in Mother Goose. So I email her and she's not the right Tamsin. Apparently there could be more than one Tamsin in Mother Goose. But this Tamsin gives me the name of another Tamsin. And after reaching out to that Tamsin on Facebook, we catch up over Zoom. I assume you are Tamsin with the coloured moon clouds. Oh, yes. At the risk of overstating things a little, I feel like I found the second gunman on the grassy knoll. But a good version. My mum was Chinese and my dad's English. They gave us all Chinese middle names. And Juat Wen, my middle name. And it means coloured moon clouds. Yeah. Ah, There we go. A mystery solved. (laughs) <laughs> I can't tell you how exciting that is to find that out, Tamsin. I've always wondered what that meant. Tamsin was only a teenager when she first met Donald. She dreamt of a life on the stage, and that led her to her local theatre, the Royal. I sat in the gods to watch all the shows and, you know, that sort of thing. And I did panto each year at the theatre and... Donald became friendly with my dad. Donald's friendship with Tamsin would last the rest of his life. But Tamsin says it wasn't the kind of relationship that it might have seemed to Nick Lumley. My relationship with him wasn't romantic. He was more like um, a friend that sort of was like a father figure to me. I mean, I was too young. Donald wrote for Tamsin her first theatre role in Mother Goose. She said she was 16 then, not 22 like Nick remembers. But throughout her late teens and early 20s, Donald also took her under his wing to show her the things that mattered most to him in the world. Donald introduced me to, well, he sort of mentored me. He sort of, from my early adulthood as a woman, he taught me about nature. He introduced me to eating in restaurants he would regale me around supper about his, his stories and his words were gorgeous. I mean, he, he sort of ed- educated me in new language. He was always lovely. I always look forward to seeing him. There's one question you're probably thinking about because I couldn't shake it either. I think it's clear from Tamsin what she got from the relationship. But what was Donald getting out of it? A man in his mid-50s taking a teenager around town. Looking back through today's lens, it feels uncomfortable, even though Tamsin insists the relationship wasn't like that. But one comment she made gives me a different take on it. He talked about his son. And he'd sort of romanticised about 
the day his son would meet me. But I never quite believed he has a son. That seems like such an odd notion. Donald has almost no contact with Perry throughout his son's life, and yet dreams about Tamsin and Perry meeting. I wonder if it's possible these two young people, who were the exact same age, had started to overlap in Donald's mind. Did he maybe regret abandoning his son and compensate by trying to give Tamsin the upbringing he'd failed to give Perry? And lacking the relationship skills to make things right with Perry, did he instead indulge in a weird dream that his new protege and his son might become some kind of couple? Did he hope that might give him a way back in? Perry and Tamsin never did properly meet, and Donald never did re-establish a relationship with his son. And in Donald's last creative work that I know of, there's a suggestion that maybe at the end he grieved the roads he'd not taken in his life. But that was still a few years off. Back where we are in the mid-80s, Donald's time at the Northampton Royal had come to an end. I should think when David Kelsey, who was the director at that theatre, left, which must have been sort of mid-80s, 85, there would then be a new regime and a new director and stuff. And that was probably the end of all the work he would get at that theatre. In a happy piece of timing, this would have coincided with the Target Books team approaching Donald to novelise his first Doctor Who story, The Mythmakers. As we discussed in episode one, Donald had a steady run of Doctor Who novelisations from 1985 to 1987, encompassing The Mythmakers, The Gunfighters and The Romans. But in 1986, before The Romans, Donald actually wrote another novel for Target Books. And this one had nothing to do with Doctor Who. As a result of doing the two Doctor Who books, W.H. Allen's Bless Their Hearts have asked me to do a, a, a new series of books for children, which I, I'm going to do. That's very nice. Was it about, or is that a secret? Uh, no, it's, a, it's about a parrot. Um, <laughs> a parrot called Josiah Bodkin, who is a parrot of the world and bird about town. He's been everywhere. He's 140 years old. <laughs> And anything that was important in the world, he was in on it. And he meets these two children, and he doesn't talk to grown-ups, he only talks to children. And he tells them about, well, the first one is about Charles Darwin and the voyage of the Beagle. The Bokken Papers isn't just written by Donald Cotton, it's illustrated by him as well. Darwin's voyage provided ample opportunity for Donald to indulge his love of drawing birds. Former Target editor Nigel Robinson explains how the book came to be. This is the time of very boozy publishing lunches. And Donald and I would go out and have a box of wine. And he was just mentioning his zoological background and how fascinated he was by Darwin. And wouldn't it be fun if we had a talking parrot accompanying Darwin to the Galapagos? And so that story came out through that boozy publishing lunch. The Bodkin Papers is the story of Josiah Bodkin, a macaw on the make. He's rudely roused from his nest in Brazil by a local tribe intent on turning him into dinner once they've plucked his feathers for a ceremonial headdress, that is. But Josiah escapes, fleeing straight into the hands of a young Charles Darwin, who's making his historic voyage on the Beagle. So, while the alarmed Darwin clutched the bird protectively to his pink whipcord waistcoat, the Bravos strode boldly forward and used their best endeavours to surmount the speech barrier to ask, Please, mister, can we have our parrot back? What they did was, they pointed possessively to their quivering quarry, and then tapped their own heads with their flat and spatulate forefingers, and looked serious. 
which we know to mean that Josiah was not, in their opinion, so much a parrot as a ceremonial headdress sacred to Quetzalcoatl, but which Darwin at first interpreted as being a suggestion that the bird was probably a bit weak in the top story? And he was inclined to agree, for Josiah was now rolling his maniacal oculars in their probably obituary orbits, and a parrot schism of panic in frenzied anticipation of his impending end. So, the naturalist took off his hat and shook his head sympathetically which they took not only to be a blunt refusal of their gentle, well-expressed request, but an indication that he himself was about to enrol their totem as his own cranial covering, whilst apparently offering them his admittedly elegant headgear in exchange. Well, they weren't going to stand for that, were they? Not on anybody's life. No, if that was going to be his patronising, white paternalistic attitude, they would not only repossess the parrot by mute and coarse brute force, but also, for good measure, take the beaver skin bonnet as well, confound him. Which, now they looked at it again, really was remarkably handsome. Beaver skin, that is, said one of them. And a very svelte pelt, indeed, my wife told me. She'll tell you anything, said the witch doctor nastily. Go on, what's a beaver? It's probably a god of some sort, I should think, supposed his informant. Or he wouldn't wear one on his head, would he? The logic of this was unassailable. And pursuing the matter further by full, frank and useful exchanges, they began to realise that because they had never even seen a beaver, it was obviously a very rare and valuable animal indeed, whereas the woods were fairly crawling with macaws. No, mightn't they do themselves a spot of good in both this world and the next by worshipping a beaver instead of an old feathered, what's his name, you know, begins with Q. Of course they would. So, looking something like Martin Luther did when he suddenly thought of the Reformation, they snatched the hat and bowed in an awestruck exit. As Josiah Bodkin and Charles Darwin sail the world, the self-involved bird stumbles his way into pointing Darwin towards most of his greatest scientific breakthroughs. In Australia, for instance, after Josiah mocks the small size of his distant budgerigar cousins, the locals school him about the realities of life. Listen, bright eyes, giganticism may be a wow where you come from, but this is a whole new ball game, Cobber, and the name of this game is miniaturization. Small is beautiful in the new world just around the corner, and you and your kind are on the way out into the dustbin of history, which has emptied every geological era. Same as the mower and the dodo, both. Or, to take another example, the megalotherium didn't last long, did he? Once the little three-toed tree sloth got into slow motion. Very well, then. You'll find pretty soon that people won't want great over-ornate parrot pens cluttering up their bijou dwellings. What they'll want is small streamlined cages suitable for the likes of us and then where will you be so if i was you i'd start shrinking while there's still time 
get with it and adapt, matey, or fatty degeneration will get you where the dinosaur got the axe. And before you know it, you'll be a fossil along with the rest of them. And thus, Josiah's family disputes lead Darwin to articulate his theory of common ancestry. I'm not sure I'll give it to kids to read, but uh, yeah, it, it it's typical Donald, I think. Um, it's incredibly clever, and I think possibly far too clever by half uh, for his target audience. Um, uh, my mum always said she was uh, she thought it was a strange decision of his to write uh, such a book because his writing style was never really going to engage with kids because he had such difficulty engaging with kids himself. Perry's not wrong. Reading the Bodkin papers brings to mind the story Nick Lumley told me about Donald's joke for Oxford Dons in Dick Whittington. Once again, Donald's offered us a supposed children's book that is bafflingly esoteric. Alongside detailed explanations of evolutionary theory, the Bodkin papers is filled with recurring jokes about drinking and marital maintenance payments. And it's surprisingly transgressive, acknowledging Western racism and skewering all forms of organised religion the latter most pointedly through the novel's main antagonist, the captain of the Beagle. She was under the command, as we've already heard, of one Captain Robert Fitzroy, a man of aristocratic descent and autocratic condescension, with a heart of oak and neck of brass, and solid teak cerebral accessories. An admirable commander for a man of war, no doubt, but one whose approach to science was rather that of a Methodist minister to alcohol, Useful medicinally, perhaps, but once treated with overindulgence, likely to undermine the fabric of civilization as we know it. Cotton's refreshingly and relentlessly egalitarian in turning almost every character, regardless of race, religion or species, into one of his trademark lovable fools. Fitzroy's probably the only character set up to be mocked, but everyone else is given a voice and perspective that is recognisable and relatable, even when they're the butt of the joke. Of course, it might be argued that the problem with being an equal opportunity satirist is that Cotton's punching down at some characters, even while he's punching up at others. And although the book is most interested in mocking white orthodoxy, at times Cotton's own racism, whether conscious or unconscious, slips to the surface. His so-called primitive characters are never the most foolish characters in a scene, but they are the only ones who regularly get physicalised as other through some unfortunate phrases that get worse than flattened spatulate forefingers. And for that, maybe the book is better left as an evolutionary dead end. Although Cotton and Robinson had bigger plans, they'd hoped for the Bodkin papers to become an ongoing series. And then it'll be about Rasputin, and um, possibly, if I dare, it'll be about Karl Marx too. (laughs) (laughs) If I had stayed, I would have asked him to do more Bodkin papers. But as so often in Donald's career... A change of management cut short his dreams. I left about 87, and um, though I'd left all my contacts with the people who took over from me, um, I don't, just don't think they cared very much for Donald Cotton writing any more stuff. Now, Donald's experience isn't unique. All freelance creators live at the mercy of these kind of regime changes. But I can't help feeling Donald was more unlucky than most. I suppose his greatest gift that unique, wonderful way with words, also proved to be his greatest obstacle. It made him an acquired taste, an authorial voice that didn't neatly slip into every new management vision. After Target, details of Donald's life get hazy. I have few facts, but lots of stories. All I thought 
about it was that he his dad was giving him money, um, like a trust or something. Others thought he'd moved in with his father in Suffolk, taking care of him till his father's death in 1985. My favourite story is that Donald was in discussion for a major restaging of his play Mamselle Nutouche by none other than Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber. Andrew Lloyd Webber wanted to do it, but Jimmy Stevens wouldn't step down because he had the, some, some tie-up with the music and he wouldn't let... They wanted to use Donald's dialogue. This is what I was told by Donald, so it could be different. Um, and they wanted to use his dialogue, but Jimmy wouldn't, um, wouldn't let them go away from his music. He said, no, it's a complete piece. And he couldn't add different music to it. So, so it didn't happen. But, you know, Donald didn't always tell the truth. You have to bear this in mind. <laughs> I contacted Sir Andrew numerous times through his website, andrewlloydweber.com, um, but he didn't reply. What I do know is that at some point, Donald moves back to the outskirts of Hastings, the place where he first married the place where his son was born, the place where he briefly had a family of his own, people who chose him and loved him, but from whom he ran away. And his feelings about that might be inferred from his last work that I know of. He was writing, I think. I know he wrote A Corner in Caradon. What's that? Well, I think it's a reflection on an older man living on his own. It was more more novel based than play um, for, for theatre production, but I'm not sure. I did read through it once. That was a long time ago. I think it was like a reflection on his life. Hmm. And what was the tone of that? I mean, what sense did you have of how he viewed his life looking back? Um, a little bit sad, I think. He he had an active, bright mind, but I think it was with some regret that he wrote that. Tamsin and Donald fell out of touch in the 90s. Well, I feel a bit bad because I think for the past, the last five years of his life, um, I don't think I corresponded as much. I I got wrapped up in my um, love life, I guess. <laughs> she last saw him in 1997 or 98. After I'd split from my son's, my husband, and I, I had a new partner and he was Irish called Donica, and Donald came to London and I invited him to the pub where he met Donica and some of his friends. And do you recall what he had to say for himself then when you met? Um, he drank a lot and went into one, but um, the Irish people in the bar loved his recitals. As far as I could see, it was a good evening all round. Um, Yeah. It's my last memory of Donald. 
I don't think he thought much of my new boyfriend. <laughs> but there you go. On Tuesday, 28th of December, 1999, Donald Cotton died, just three days short of the end of the 20th century. I'm tempted to say that for the country gentleman who always belonged to another era, his date of passing was fitting. But that's the kind of mythologising that trapped Donald with his demons for most of his life. And I'm reminded of that because Perry sent me the report of the coroner's inquest. Well, here it is. Record of inquest. Perry's emailed this through to me. Following an investigation commenced on the 7th of January 2000, and an inquest hearing at Hastings on the 16th of February 2000 heard before the said coroner's area, the following findings and determinations were made. Name of deceased Donald Cotton. Medical cause of death 1A pyothorax, 1B pneumonia, 1C traumatic fracture to ribs. So we knew that. 3. How, when and where and in what circumstances the deceased came by his or her death. Deceased fell backwards down the stairs at his home, probably drunk, on the evening of 4th of December 1999. Jesus. He died of his injuries at 8.15pm on the 29th of December 1999. No mystery, no conspiracy, just a sad lonely end. Nick Lumley gets back in touch with me to say he's been talking to some friends from the Northampton Royal. According to one of them, Donald was found by the landlord of the local pub. He'd gotten worried when Donald hadn't shown up by 11.30 in the morning, so he went round to Donald's house and found Donald lying at the bottom of the stairs. He'd been there for more than 12 hours. Donald Cotton died 25 days later at Conquest Hospital in Hastings. He didn't leave a will. Talented, troubled, Donald Cotton spent his life tormented by a lack of self-worth. He treated that hole eating away inside him with alcohol, elaborate performances to entertain friends, and by compulsively avoiding deeper connections. Which makes it even more heartbreaking that his work became a joke in Doctor Who circles for so long. He was an extraordinary man. He wrote two of the best Doctor Who stories with a wit which has rarely been equaled. He actually showed you could do a lot of sophisticated stuff with Doctor Who that actually... It's probably a good job that only he did, because in other people's hands, I don't think it would have been as good. He showed how broad the approach to Doctor Who can be, which is, I think, a good reminder, you know, that the show should always perhaps su- strive to surprise itself and its, its audience rather than have a house style. I think Donald Cotton is the missing link in English comedy that connects Gilbert and Sullivan and Noel Coward to Douglas Adams. All of them masterful creators of topsy-turvy worlds, whirling in a mix of high and low comedy, skewering social pretensions to reveal and embrace the flawed humans hiding underneath. But Donald never managed to make peace with his own flawed humanity. Digging through these archives for the past two years, my appreciation for Donald's creative skills have continued to grow and grow, and I hope this documentary, in its own small way, might increase appreciation for him amongst Doctor Who fandom. But I've also come to understand that the lost legacy of Donald Cotton isn't really his work that got forgotten in history. And it's not those extra stories he never got to make for us. Instead, it's the love he created in people he touched, but that he could never see or let himself become part of. And that's something I can't give back.
But maybe next time you crack open the Mythmakers or turn on the gunfighters, stop for a moment, think of Donald, and say thanks. So fill up your glasses and join in the song. The law's right behind you and it won't take long. So come, you coyotes, and howl at the moon till there's blood upon the sawdust in the last chance saloon. Mythmaker, The Lost Legacy of Donald Cotton, is made by me, Lucas Testro. Thank you to this episode's guests, Perry Jones, Hilary Wright, Nicholas Lumley, Tamsin Hickling, Nigel Robinson and Toby Haydock. Readings from the Bodkin Papers were performed by Simon Conlon. All other readings were by Tim Dickinson. You can find a full video of Donald Cotton's Doctor Who Appreciation Society appearance as a bonus feature on video 79 of the Mythmaker series, available at timetraveltv.com. Both panels on that video are fantastic and well worth tracking down. Till your last long ride.